so you might want to come to that too. Okay, tonight we're going to talk about friendship. We're talking about friendship tonight. Um, what it is and what God's wisdom for it looks like. For those of you here a couple weeks ago, we talked about wisdom being like a multifaceted gem. When you read the wisdom literature of the Bible, wisdom is full of metaphors and similes. It's kind of like Jesus' parables. If, if, you've, if you've heard those or, or read those, I encourage you to try to imagine one right now. People would ask him, what is the kingdom of God like? And he would say, it's like a mustard seed or like a farmer or like a pearl or a net. And the point wasn't that like any single metaphor captured like the answer to their question entirely. What's the kingdom of God like? It's like a net, right? Like it wasn't that one metaphor was going to capture the whole thing. It was that each of these things was like a facet of a diamond. And when you begin to see them all together and you begin to turn that diamond in your hand, you start to have a fuller picture of what he's talking about. And wisdom is a little bit like that. And we are people desperate for wisdom, for help in knowing what to do and how to live, what our family and social lives ought to look like, what to do with majors and jobs and careers, what to do with our bodies and our thoughts and our feelings, with our money and our free time, with our romantic interests, and with our friendships. We are a people who are desperate for wisdom. And listen to what God tells us about wisdom in the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 20 through 23. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out in the public square. She calls to the crowds along the main street, to those gathered in front of the city gate. How long, you simpletons, will you insist on being simple-minded? How long will you mockers relish your mocking? How long will you fools hate knowledge? Come and listen to my counsel. I'll share my heart with you and make you wise. Wisdom shouts in the streets. She cries out. Wisdom is not hidden. It's not elusive. Thank you, Taylor. I really appreciate that. It's not elusive. Some of us think that. Some of us are like, man, where can I find wisdom? I just want to know what things ought to look like. It's crying out. It's calling out for you, friend, pleading for you to listen and share your heart with her. I encourage you to read through the Proverbs with me this semester. It's pretty much dead center in your Bible. And it's this collection of wisdom the Hebrew people put together for their community. And there is so much in it about friendship. Now, there's not a single verse that tells us everything we need to know about friendship or one passage of Scripture, that if we just found that one and flipping through the pages of the text, we would know this is everything we need to know about friendship. There are dozens of passages about friendship, and each one of them plays along with, with the other, and by holding them together and kind of turning them and seeing how they play off one another, we begin to see a picture form. So tonight we're going to look at a few different passages of Scripture, mostly from the Proverbs, um, and we're going to ask God to give us wisdom regarding friendship. This kind of relationship, which I know from conversations with so many of you, means a ton to us. So let's ask him for help right now. Let's pray, and then we'll get into some text. Father, um, thank you for sharing wisdom with us. 
Thank you that it cries out in the streets. Thank you that it can be known and it's not hiding. We ask for your spirit um, to help us tonight, to help us think honestly about the friendships in our lives, to have the courage to open our eyes and our imaginations to it. We ask for your spirit to help us hope. Many of us in this room are so defeated in this topic. Um, we ask for your spirit to free us from bondage in different ways, to lead us into new life. We pray um, the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts and minds would be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So friendships. Before we read actually a text, I want to say one thing about them. They're kind of a, they're a fascinating kind of relationship. One of my heroes, uh, literary heroes for sure, C.S. Lewis, um, argued that friendship um, held in it, or friendships held in them, a kind of love which isn't necessary for survival. So a person could, theoretically, be conceived, raised, and work and play and live and die they could essentially create and procreate without having friendships. That would be a super lame way to live, but it could technically be done. Friendship isn't, in other words, needed for survival. It's just needed for flourishing. It's needed for abundant life. It's needed for really, really good life. And what's more, because it's not needed for survival, it's potentially the freest way that we can love and enjoy one another because it's not technically needed. Friendship cannot be forced or coerced or manipulated. Some of you need to hear that. Friendship cannot be forced or coerced or manipulated. If it were, we wouldn't call it friendship anymore. There's a freedom in it, an open-handedness. And that image, the open-handedness, is, is actually just my favorite image for what a good, wise friendship looks like. Open hands, not clinging, not pointing, not demanding, probably not even expecting, just open. Now that is super vulnerable, and if you would dare to even imagine yourself in that posture before another human being, that's really vulnerable, and God would encourage us to be vulnerable and to guard ourselves wisely in the Proverbs. Which brings us to our first proverb on friendship. Proverbs 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. Whoever walks with fools will suffer harm. I said at the beginning uh, of the semester a few weeks back that, that throughout this whole entire sermon series, because wisdom cries out in the streets, because it's not hiding, because it's obvious, because every time I say to somebody, hey, give me some advice about friendship, everybody actually has stuff to say, and most of them are saying similar things. Like, it's obvious what wisdom is. This whole semester is probably going to be super frustrating for us because there isn't going to be a sermon where you're going to be like, aha, that is the Greek translation of the word I've been waiting for to set me on my path to my new life or whatever. Like most of the sermons this whole semester are going to be like, yep, it's just whether or not I want to do it. Um, so sorry. I just want to say sorry about that. Okay. Um, that's the thing. Um, all right, so uh, you can probably imagine that uh, sometimes people come up to me uh, and say, hey, Jason, what do you think about me you know, asking this person on a date? And if this, if this uh, woman says, hey, what do you think about me asking this guy on a date? I, I would say often something like this. If I don't know him really well, 
I would say, what are his friends like? That's actually one of the first questions that come to my mind. A guy asked me, Jason, what do you think about me dating this, this girl? And I said, well, she's a woman, not a girl. Uh, that's actually my bad. Uh, I said it. Okay, anyway, uh, what do you think about me dating this woman? One of the first questions that comes to my mind is, what are her friends like? And here, here's what I mean specifically. Uh, sometimes I won't vocalize all this, but here's what I'm looking for. Do they want to be like her in healthy ways? Do they respect her? And does she respect them and want to be like them? I'm not actually, like, super interested in whether or not, like, she's really just liked by all of her friends or whether she has a lot of them. I'm interested in whether or not she's respected by her friends and whether she respects her friends. That's what I'm interested in. And if the answer is, actually, I don't think she has many friends, or I think that the answer is, I'll just move to the guy for a second just to be fair. He doesn't have any friends, or he's got, like, a bunch of friends. I'm not sure they like, I'm not sure they want to be like him in any particular way. I would tell this woman, you probably don't need to date him right now. You know why? Because we become like the people we are around. We are reflexive creatures, always changing and becoming, and we become like whatever we surround ourselves with. This is how God made us. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Are they people that you want to be like? Because you're becoming like them. One of my friends says it this way. This is harsh, and it's probably not mathematically accurate, but it works. You are the average of your three closest friends. To the degree that that's true, it makes me want to be very selective of who I let into this hallowed circle. If you want to be wise, surround yourself with wise friends. If you want to work hard, who should you surround yourself with? Hard workers. If you want to have compassion on others, surround yourself with compassionate people. Open yourselves up to these people. Surround yourself with them. If you surround yourself with laziness or cynicism or negativity or anxiety or judgmentalism, do you know what you're becoming more like? Guard yourself around these people. A few of you think of your... uh, I don't know how this is going to come across. I just, and this language doesn't get used too much, but a few of you think of your roommate and your, your roommates and your friendships and your dating lives as missionary work. Um, be careful. Jesus didn't even send his close friends out except for two by two. If you're moving into that house because you just want to minister to all these people and you're the only person there that values some of the things that you value, Look, the, 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 like specifically, look, I'm preaching a sermon. We're talking about the Bible. Like, I, I, I'm, I care in, specifically about your faith in Christ. But I mean, like, you want to study because you need to make grades to get a job with the degree that you're doing. You're, you're, you happen to be studying one of those majors that has jobs at the end of them sometimes. And, uh, and you need to study. Why would you move into a house with a bunch of people that don't study? Oh, the scripture is gone. There's a lot of Bibles everywhere in this room. You can find one and read it. Um, If you want to be wise, surround yourself with wise people. Take stock of who you surround yourself with because you're becoming like them. And others close to you are becoming more like you. I want to throw in one caveat here. As I'm reading this and thinking about it, something comes to my mind. What I, what I, I, the scriptures are not saying, and I 
don't want to imply is that what you should surround yourself with is a bunch of people who are already like you. That's different. Surround yourself with people that you want to be like. Surround yourself with people that you respect. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson calls them, uh, calls them people that you have a formidable degree of fear and reverence for. Because they are actually a difference. They have a difference from you, too. Some of you ought to be moving into places and hanging out with people and surrounding yourself with, actually all of us should do this, with people who are so very different from us, but who we would love to be more like. Do you see that difference I'm, I'm trying to draw there? I want to make sure I nuance that carefully. Whoever walks with the wise will become wise. But what do wise friends look like? Proverbs 17, 17. A friend is always loyal. And a brother is born to help in a time of need. Good is a big word. You guys are college students, so we can work on it. Good, wise friendships require constancy. Constancy. Constancy means being faithful and dependable. This is what wise friends look like. The word here in this translation is loyal. Faithful friends, dependable friends, constancy. And constancy, what do you think is required for people to be constant? Time. Constancy requires time. One of the most central ingredients to any friendship is time. It can't alone guarantee a friendship, but a good friendship cannot be had without it. It cannot be had without it. I sent a text to my best friend last night. Um, Kaylee, would you put that text up on the screen? Nobody's going to be able to read it, but I, I just wanted you guys to see it there. I'll, I'll read it. Maybe it makes you feel more involved in my reading it. Uh, uh, I sent this text to him last night because like, we're talking about friendship today, and he's my best friend, and I wanted to know what my friend had to say. I thought that was smart. I don't know. Uh, that's some of the conversation next week about decision making. Anyway, so here's the text. Mine at the top says, preaching about friendship tomorrow. What's one thing you wish young people knew about friendship? And he said, oh, dang. Um, <laughs> just one? And I think there was supposed to be a question mark after that. Uh, we got some work to do. I'm surrounding myself with good people. Um, here's what he says. Here's my gut response. And I have no idea how to completely convey this in a text. But if I could say one thing to college students right now, it would be this. And he doesn't say one thing, obviously. But... Uh, we're, we're good friends. We've become like each other. You know, if you know me, that's normal. Uh, learn the difference between apologizing to your friends and forgiving them for the injustices they commit against you. I would also add that the Bible speaks a lot about the tongue being a double-edged sword. In essence, words, whether said in person or over the phone or written in an email via social media, can have a tremendous impact. So learn to love your friends with your words and be careful with words that harm. If you want an illustration, and I'm not joking at all when I say this, the words I love you that you have constantly said to me as we hang up the phone or when we see one another have made me believe I'm worth being loved. Even when the enemy has had me disbelieving those words in my darkest hours. It's not just the words, but the consistency. I'll shut up now. And then a winking, smiling face. That's what he texted me last night. I didn't text him back until this morning uh, because that's how good of a friend I am. Uh, but you know what I texted him? I love you. That's what I texted him. Uh, and, and, but listen, listen. Do you think the very first time that I said those words to that man that he believed in? 
You think when I said I love you, he believed them? No. Actually, I had somebody recently, um, uh, somebody in our community say recently how frustrated they were with how easily everybody just throws the phrase I love you around all the time in a little converted coffee shop down there. And the concern, of course, isn't that somebody says I love you. It's that I don't trust that they mean it. I don't know when my friend Jonathan believed those words. I don't know the moment. I just know that in order for him to believe those words, and quite frankly, in order for me to mean them, we needed constancy over time. Good, wise friends are with you for the long haul. Proverbs 18, 24. There are friends, quote unquote, who destroy each other, but a real friend sticks closer than a brother. Some translations will say this, a person of many companions comes to ruin. That's what the first half of that means. Look, if, if, if good friendships need time, if they need constancy, right? If they need that, and you, as a, as a human, you have a finite amount of time in your life, you actually cannot be good friends with very many people. And having tons of companions... Lots of followers, lots of participants in group me's, lots of people you see on a weekly basis, tons of people in your home. That will not actually keep you from coming apart at the seams. The wisdom here actually seems to imply that a person who has a ton of so-called friends, the New Living Translation puts that in quotes to de delineate that from the end of this verse, that a person who has a ton of these people is more likely to come to ruin. And I imagine it's because they're spread too thin to stick to anyone. That word sticks there, right? A real friend sticks closer than a brother. It, it, it's actually from the same root word as a word in Genesis for a woman cleaving to a man and that being equated with marriage. If good friendship requires a high level of constancy, meaning, remember, faithfulness and dependability, how constant can you be if you're spread too thin? A real friend, they stick. It means bonding, sticking with, being together. That word has actually a ton of play in the Old Testament. A ton of it. It's this rich, rich word. They stick closer than a brother or a sister. If you want to know what a real friend looks like, it's somebody who sticks around for the long haul, and they actually stick. Proverbs 27, 6 and 9. I skipped a couple verses for those of you guys that are, a few technically, if those of you are uncomfortable with that. Um, you can read them. They're in the Bibles. Uh, Wounds from a friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. The heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume or incense. Here's what I think about when I read these verses. No, seriously, you look great. That's what I think about. Many kisses from an enemy. Flattery and kisses, but not honesty. You know, one of the first signs for me that someone might be a good friend or that I would be willing to risk some stuff, right, to, to enter into this relationship, that I would become more vulnerable and more open-handed with them. One of the first signs for me is that they take risks and have courage and say some hard things to me. Jason, I'm concerned for you. I don't think that's a good idea. Jason, you look kind of dumb in those big headphones you wear sometimes in coffee shops all over town. 
Jason, you got spinach in your teeth. Uh, what, all of that. I don't actually eat spinach very often, so that doesn't happen. But when I hear anything like that, really, from someone that I like, someone I've spent some time with, I actually start to believe that they might care about me. Y'all, we're surrounded by fluff a lot, by flattery and kisses, by hearts and likes and follows, by uncritical and unloving affirmation, and these are not the voices that we need to be listening to. Listen to the ones who are full of heartfelt counsel. Listen to the ones who are risking awkwardness and offense to speak truth to you. And look, someone who just says like hard things without loyalty, someone who says hard things without constancy, someone who says hard things without having courage or being vulnerable, that's just a jerk and you shouldn't be listening to them. But if someone is loyal, if someone is faithful and dependable, if someone's like a friend of yours like that, and, and they're actually saying heartfelt things and stuff, well, before the heartfelt things, if someone is loyal to you, constant with you, sticks with you, you know what this means? This means that when you hurt, they hurt a little bit. That's what it means. If my best friend Jonathan is going through a train wreck of a season, I feel that in my bones somewhere. And we're complicated creatures. I can still be excited that it's my daughter's birthday on the same day, but there is still also a part of me, and these things don't conflict. I'm actually just able to feel them all. I also feel broken up or messed up about my friend who's in a hard spot. Mourning with those who mourn, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, right? I could be going through a really tough time. He calls me up and he tells me how, some fantastic thing that's happened to him and his wife and, and the news that, that's going. No matter what I'm going through, if I'm, if I'm close with him, I can't help but feel a connection that affects me. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you have that kind of friendship happening and someone is willing to say, wounding things to you, hard things to you, doesn't that mean that they also hurt themselves? Good friends are willing to say hard things and speak truth to us. They're vulnerable and transparent. It legitimately hurts me to say hard things to people I love. I have cried disciplining my kids. I've wept confronting my friends. This friend that sent me a text, man, I don't know where we stand on any kind of balance with like who's done more for whom. And that it's best to get rid of that. But there have been times I have called him up to confront him. And before he picked up the phone, I'm already crying because of what I have to tell him. It's so much easier. It's so much easier to say, no, you look great. And let somebody else do the hard work. I feel absolutely terrible telling someone who is a good friend that they have spinach in their teeth. Because even with something that trivial, if they're a good friend, I kind of feel it too. And I'm like, you have something in your teeth. Oh, geez, do I have something in my teeth? And like, I feel it. Wounds from a friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. God, but it's so tempting to go after the kisses. This is how St. Augustine, um, one of the leaders of our church from the first few centuries after Christ, says it. Not everyone who spares is a friend, nor is everyone who strikes an enemy. And he quotes the scriptures, better are the wounds of a friend than the proffered kisses of an enemy. Love mingled with severity 
is better than deceit with indulgence. Friends, you need to find friends who are willing to speak truth into your life, who are constant and stick with you and risk heartfelt counsel. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verse 31. Do for others as you would like them to do for you. So you need to find friends who are willing to speak truth into your life, right? Who are constant, who stick with you, risk heartfelt counsel. I would add probably be vulnerable with you. That's kind of what that means when, when you feel what they feel. There's a degree of vulnerability there. But the reality is you cannot make someone else become friends with you. We can't make people become friends with us. This is beyond our power, and thank God that it is. But what it means is this. You cannot make someone be a good friend to you, but you can be a good friend to someone else. All right, what does that mean? It means something like this. Being vulnerable with them. I want vulnerability. I don't know how to get it from you, but I can be vulnerable with you. I can give you heartfelt counsel. I can stick with you. I can be constant in your life. I can be someone that is good for you to be like. Here's the invitation. When you're sitting there wishing someone would invite you out to lunch, what do you think maybe you should do? Invite someone out to lunch. When you wish someone would ask you about your day, you know what you can do? You can ask someone about their day. When you wish someone would compliment you on your new shoes, find someone to compliment. When you wish someone would ask you about your fantasy football team, ask them about theirs. It's never happened. And listen, you don't do this to put people in your debt. Friendship is open-handed. You don't do this to get them to reciprocate. I don't say, how was your day, and then wait for you to ask me how my day is. I do it because I actually know what it feels like to wish somebody would ask me how I'm doing, and I don't know how to get you to do that. And so I just want that, and I give up control for that, and I say, well, at least, thing, at least I can do this. I know how somebody else might be feeling, and I can address what's going on in them. That's what I can do. So me asking you how your day is might have nothing to do like, in terms of, there may not be a back and forth that I'm expecting. Actually, if I'm healthy, there wouldn't be an expectation of a back and forth. I'm actually just trying to love you out of the poverty of my own life. Maybe God's strength can be made perfect in my weakness. Maybe. Maybe I just wish somebody would call me and invite me out to do a thing. And so I know, I know what it's like to feel lonely and feel like nobody is pursuing me. I wish somebody would help me out financially with a thing. I, I don't know how to get people to do that, so, but I know I can help other people out financially with things. Not to be passive-aggressive, not to guarantee reciprocity, not to do any of that. I, I hope for those things, sure. I just now can identify with other people in compassion and mercy and grace, and I know what they might be going through, and I don't know because God took it out of my hands, and it's good that he did, I'm pretty sure. That I can't get you to do things for me, but I, I know he has put it into my stewardship to do some of these things for you. I don't have the power to satisfy myself, but I can maybe meet some needs in you.
though I can desire and remain open to friendship by not isolating myself or by being someone who's growing in maturity and wisdom. Those are things which can keep me open to the possibility of people pursuing me. Like it's hard for people to ask me how I'm doing if I don't ever see people, right? I hope that makes some sense. I, I know that there's times I want people to say some truthful and hard things to me, but am I the kind of person that people can say hard things to. Like every time somebody says something hard to me, do I say something nasty back? Do I get overly defensive? Do I get hypercritical? Do I think it's some competent? If so, I'm going to systematically eradicate any of the kinds of people in my life that could say hard things to me. I can become the kind of person that is more open to good friends. I can, I can do that, but I can't make someone actually be a friend to me. All I can do is be a friend to them. I can't get you to listen to me, but I can listen to you. And so though I might want to be satisfied, I can at least participate in the satisfaction of someone else while I wait on God to come through. If you've never caught wind of this, this is how God always works with us. We are quite simply unable to save ourselves. And so although we desire to, for others to do things for us, what we can't do for ourselves, we're commanded, we're commanded to do for them what we'd like them to do for us. And Jesus doesn't say, you, you do for others what you want them to do for you because then if you do it for them, it's very likely that they'll do it for you. You know, what goes around comes around. That's not in the Bible. There are some things interestingly like that you know, there's nothing that we've sort of given up that God doesn't know about. You haven't uh, sort of left family and friend and mother and brother in such a way that you will not receive that four times over in the new kingdom. Like, there's things like that, but that's, you understand there's a difference in what I'm saying and what those passages are saying, right? God is not commanding us to do to others what we would have them do for us in order that they would be more likely to do things for us. He's inviting us to participate in the kind of work his son did on this earth. He's inviting us to share in his kingdom work. Be the friend you wish others were for you. That's the invitation. And like usual, like usual, this is so like Jesus, our great king has gone before us. In his constancy, in his wounds, in his heartfelt counsel, in his vulnerability, our God was moved and stirred by others around him all the time. Lest you think that Jesus has ever asked you to do things that he himself did not go through. Lest you think you have a God who is unable to sympathize with you. Our God was moved and stirred by others around him, doing for them what he would have them do for him. Which sounds pretty bold. But I want you to remember a moment. Maybe if you haven't read this, maybe it's the first time you've heard it, but for some of you this, this will be a memory. In the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed by his friend. At the moment of his greatest temptation, when he was most alone with the Father, facing before God the Father what nobody else will ever have to face, he asked his friends to pray for him. There's like mysteries wrapped in enigmas in this for me. There really is. But, but I want you to try to see something here. 
he asked his friends to pray for him, and they were asleep. And three different times, he, he came back and he said, please, please get up. The hour is almost at hand. Will you pray for me? Pray that you too do not fall into temptation. Pray for you. Pray for He asked him to pray. And they kept falling asleep. It's baffling to me that God would have friends, first of all, but that he would ask them to pray for him? To pray on his behalf, and they didn't, they couldn't, they were too tired. And still, when we were most alone, he prays for us. When you hear me say, be the friend you wish others were, you essentially can just hear me say, be like Jesus. Because this is the way he lives his life. Being the kind of person that he would have us all be for others. He has gone before us, and he has sent his spirit to help. Whatever you feel, we're not actually all alone together. You are friends with God most high. And it would do good for you to get on with realizing it. And I think one of the ways you can realize it most is by sharing in his work. At one, at one point in John chapter 15, Jesus kind of turns this corner with his disciples. It's right near the end, right before this garden scene. And he says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. And he says, it's because I'm not holding back anything from you. I'm revealing, you, revealing to you everything. He goes on to say, you are going to do greater work than me. There is this, Jesus is, is telling his disciples, he's letting them in. He's letting them in. You are no longer my servants, you are my friends. And he offers this invitation to all of us too. And one of the ways we realize it, potentially the best way we realize it, is by paying attention to what he's revealing to us and doing the work he's invited us into. This is, quite frankly, it's a really, really common experience. You often do feel uh, more kinship with people when you just work alongside them. Like, it's just one of the ways we're made. If I'm sitting, if me teach, you guys don't feel like friends with me if this is the only relationship we have. But if you and I sit down together and we start writing a sermon together, which you probably, that sounds like the worst way for you to spend your time, I'm sure. Um, but if we were, you would begin, and I would begin to feel like we're more like friends. If we just go grocery shopping together, if we go on a mission trip and serve side by side, barriers and walls break down. I was talking to a group of friends of mine. We meet once a month around a campfire. Yep, uh, and, uh, and we, t we talk about things, and, um, and I, I made a comment to them in light of this. I said, what's crazy about the experience and what's crazy about the way friendship works is that a king could come to that night around that fire, and they would be treated just the same as a convict coming. It, we're friends here. Your titles don't matter. We're friends. And we, we meet on that kind of ground. And Jesus invites us into something like that with him. And the way that he's invited us to realize it is to get on with his work, which looks like being the kind of friend that you wish others were to you. He promises, by the way, to come and make a home within us if we do this. All right, I want to say just two things real quick and we'll, we'll pray. If right now, because there's two groups of people in this room that I have a particular concern for, um, yeah, so, and one of the groups is this. If you're thinking, like, I, I just need, like, all new friends, dude. <laughs> like, uh, like, I'm taking stock of, like, three, and I, and nope, uh, I want new, I need to make new friends. Um, look, this is really hard work. 
One of the Proverbs says something to this effect. I think it's Proverbs 20, verse 6, says something to this effect. There are so many people who proclaim to love others and be good friends, but a faithful friend who can find. Truly, this is hard work forging friendships, and truly it's lifelong work. This work of forging friendships is part, I think, of the very life God has called us to. So I'm, I'm 38 years old, and I, I think I am working on, not I think, I know, I am working on and forging friendships to a much greater capacity and to a much greater degree than I was when I was 18. And, and I suspect that I'll do it more still. And if it's true that friendships require time to build, if constancy is, a, is, is something necessary, if loyalty is something necessary for good, wise friendships, it's going to be slow, steady work until the day that I die. It's really hard work. So, some of you might think, man, i got to find friends because I don't want to get out of college without having like, friends for life. You're going to have to do that again in your 20s and in your 30s and in your 40s and in your 50s. Your best friends and you will move different places. Life changes and seasons will, will ebb and flow, different things. This is not an invitation to get stuff together now so that you don't stumble later in some kind of weird, pressured way. It's an invitation into a kind of life. For the rest of your life, will you be the kind of friend that you wish others were to you? If you need to make all new friends, I'm sorry, it's hard work. The closest I can compare it to is moving across the country. I'm hail from Seattle. Uh, sure, and uh, thanks, I see you in the back, yeah, uh, nobody said anything, um, the, uh, it was really hard for me to move to a whole new city with, I had a tremendous group of friends, I had a group of friends that when I moved away from Seattle to a city called Tacoma, which I don't ever usually talk about, uh, but it was like 45 minutes south of Seattle, I had friends, this is a cool gesture, y'all, they, they had a key made, they had it painted with rainbows and hearts for some reason, but, but they said, um, on their own initiative, they said, hey, we want our place to be like a sanctuary for you. Here's a key. You're welcome anytime you want. We know that because you don't know anybody in the new city that you're moving to, Tacoma, it's going to be very likely for you to do work all the time or be lonely. So if you ever want to come up, you're welcome to. We're going to, this is seriously what they said. We're going to always make an extra meal on every Friday night. On the off chance that you come by, we'll just always have an extra meal ready. Are you kidding me? At one, one time I was up there for a weekend and we were having this big surprise birthday party for our friend David Chin and, and, and there was like 30 or 40 people hanging out and I'm sitting on the couch. It's not my place, remember? I'm sitting on the couch talking with somebody. We'll go like this and the door opens and David Chin comes in and we're all about to yell, surprise, you know, that kind of thing. And David looks at me and he goes, what? And I go, surprise, everybody else surprised. He comes and gives me a hug. He's like, what's this? I'm like, it's a surprise party for you, man. He's like, I thought you just had like a ton of people over. Like, that's the way my friends, like, were extending this sort of hospitality and invitation to me. And they, you guys, we prayed together. I mean, it was this rich, 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 rich friendship. And I, I moved to, to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I remember writing a letter to a, another friend of mine in this sort of group named John. And I said, John, I miss all the things that I don't have to say. Ugh, every time I meet somebody, I have to say, my name's Jason, and I just moved here, and I'm working on the college campus, and I'm, it's like stats. I don't want to do that. I want to... I want to just be right there, and it, it takes time. 13 years in Chattanooga, and it's taken years. I have one friendship I've been trying to work on for 13 years, but I can't make him like me. It'll happen, but it hasn't happened yet. 
I got another friend, took me eight years, and we are good friends, but I didn't make it happen. He just decided he was going to be my friend one day, and I said, woo. Uh, and like, but the, the, it takes time. Those of you that need to make new friends, it's going to take time. Last thing, if right now you're thinking, if good friends are defined by constancy and loyalty and vulnerability and heartfelt counsel, I don't know if I have any friends. If you have been starved for friendships and, and the options are slim and, and all of your efforts seem to be coming up vain, you're scratching and tilling at soil and sprouts don't even come up. If that, if that is a, an experience that's common to you, I really, really want to encourage you to talk to someone that you trust and ask them why they think you might be struggling to forge good friendships. I'd be happy to do that. We got a whole staff that'd be happy to do that. We, we, are, we have tons of friends in local churches all over the city. We have friends with counseling organizations around town. There's some wonderful counselors at the UGC campus. I think you guys get like four or six free counseling sessions there. Like, it, it really, can I encourage you to ask somebody, do you think there's any reasons why I might be struggling to forge good friendship? Oh, guys, that takes so much courage to do something like that. And I pray that whoever receives you is kind and true. Because the reality is in this world, a faithful friend is hard to find. We have found it in Jesus, but he wants us to find it in others too. And in response to that, we're invited to be the friend to others, that we would have them be to us. This is the wisdom of God for friendship. Let's pray.